0: The future may not be clear, but our commitment is. So when you sit with an advisor at Merrill Lynch, we'll put your interests first. Visit ML.com and learn more about Merrill Lynch, an affiliate of Bank of America. Merrill Lynch makes available products and services offered by Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Federn, Smith, Incorporated, a registered broker, dealer, member, SIPC. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio.
1: This week on the podcast, we have an extra special guest. His name is Ned Davis. He is the founder of the highly regarded Ned Davis Research and author of numerous books. We'll talk about that later. Quick, interesting story. Long before Masters in Business came along, I had been kicking an idea around about finding these really successful, articulate, intelligent people and sitting down and having a conversation with them. And and I think Ned... I'll include the link uh, to this on on the blog post. Ned may have been the very first person I spoke to. Um, We did it on the radio. We did it uh, unedited. It was pretty much straight through. It's very rough. But the concept for this show pretty much came from a conversation I had with him. Uh, He is one of the best regarded technicians around, a technician's technician. If you are at all interested in in quantitative technical trading – um, you're going to love this. So with no further ado, my conversation with Ned Davis. My special guest today is Ned Davis. He is the founder of renowned technical research firm, Ned Davis Re- uh, Research. Ned was a regular on uh, This Week with Louis Rukeiser. He frequently graces the pages of Barron's and other financial publications. He founded Ned Davis Research in 1980 It now employs well over 100 people. He is the author of The Triumph of Contrarian Investing, Markets in Motion, and Being Right or Making Money, and he's probably best known as a technician's technician. Ned Davis, welcome to Bloomberg.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: Uh, you know, it, it's it's really interesting that we have you here because when I first started doing this before... We were broadcasting them on the radio. You were one of the first people I spoke with, Uh, and we did a phone interview. I want to say that was like eight or 10 years ago. A lot of stuff has happened since then. Let's talk a little bit about your background. You were studying French in, I believe it was Paris, when you decided, "Um, I'm going to change my career direction. Tell us tell us about that incident
2: well I, actually i was at the university of north carolina and i had uh, decided i wanted to be a doctor and so i was a chemistry major and uh, uh, then i decided i did not want to be a doctor and uh, i had was spending a part of a year in france and uh, so i had to graduate with something else and i really liked french literature so uh, <clears throat> that's the way i graduated uh, as a french major um I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do, so they they have these uh, I guess psychological tests that t- test your aptitude and your interests. and <clears throat> they said my Aptitude was in math, mm-hmm. but I didn't wasn't interested in math. And what I was interested in was verbal, but I wasn't any good at verbal. So <laughs> I was thinking I had had two jobs in the summer at a company called J.C. Bradford Company as an intern, and I really liked that. You were able to write and read and write, and uh, you were able to use your math skills. So I said, well, this is this is a perfect for me. So then I ended up going to Harvard Business School, which I thought I was going to learn business, but it's actually a management school, mm-hmm. which is not what I wanted. So uh, then I worked, went to work full-time for J.C. Bradford Company.
1: So somewhere in the middle of that, I recall you telling a story about studying French in France. Someone made a reference about your Southern accent, and you were kind of thinking- really i'm not sure if this is for me am i misremembering that?
2: <laughs> well I, it was uh, i really uh, did not know much french when <clears throat> when i went to france and uh you know i was trying to learn the languages best i could and uh We had a class, and the teacher uh, said, oh, thank you for saying that. Uh, This was in French, of course. And she said, I always wondered what Lyndon Johnson would sound like speaking French. And now I know. And I'm thinking, (laughs) well, Lyndon Johnson can barely speak English much. So I decided that uh, speaking French was not going to be my skill set.
1: So you go to J.C. Bradford. You start penning a daily technical report. What were your go-to indicators or, or charts back at that time?
2: I think I was pretty much a traditional uh, chartist at that time, and just uh, looking at chart patterns and uh, trying to pick out stocks and uptrends and stay away from stocks and downtrends. But of course, I was studying a lot of other, uh, I'd say, independent research at the time, so I was trying to learn from that. So I, I pretty much uh, I self self taught myself my field.
1: What was it like really beginning your education in the field? in what turned out to be a pretty long bear market in the 60s and 70s. Yeah, I
2: I, uh, actually, I think that makes a big difference when you ask people what your outlook is on the market. And I say, well, when when did you start in the business? And if you started in 68, like I did, you were going to live the first 14 years in a a really grueling uh, bear market.
1: So a quote of yours goes something like this. We are, on the, we are in the business of making mistakes. The only difference between the winners and the losers is that the winners make small mistakes while the losers make big mistakes. Discuss that a bit. The whole Warren
2: Buffett's got a quote and he says, uh, his ru- uh, two rules for making money. And he said, rule number one, don't lose money. And he said, rule number two, don't never forget rule number one. So uh, it's all about compounding interest and compounding your returns. And if you take a horrible loss, uh, you know, if you lose 50% on a stock, uh, it's not a 50% rise that gets you back to even. It's a a 100% rise. So if you have a big loss, it's really hard to compound your returns. So. Uh, I knew there was going to be mistakes in the business. I'm just trying to you know, find out a mistake and cut it as quickly as possible. I think
1: that's the key. And early in your career, you had made a, a number of calls, some of which were very big calls. But I have been following your career and reading you for so long. I know your thinking on predictions and forecasting has evolved a lot. Uh, tell us a little bit about that.
2: Yeah, so you know, it's a business of forecasting, that's what clients want to want you to do, so that's what I tried to do and I studied forecasts and I saw a lot of forecasters make some dramatically correct forecasts. But generally, uh, they would make a great forecast and a couple of years later make a terrible forecast. And it was just like a flame out in the night. And I didn't want my career to be that way. And I, I was lucky enough to have some 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 really good forecasts, but I still was suspicious. And when you go back and study the forecasting record, for example, uh, the Federal Reserve Board of Philadelphia, has been studying for 50 years uh, consensus of professional economists. And uh, they they look at their forecast for the following year. There's been seven recessions since 1970, and the economists as a group, uh, obviously individual economists have done better, but as a group, they call none, not a single one of the seven recessions. And interestingly enough, in the last, since 2001, they've been 80. I think 86% of the time, they've been too low on their forecasts. They, they, excuse me, the forecasts have been too high for what the economy's actually done. So it's a very tough field forecasting.
1: You launched your firm in 1980. Really, a couple of recessions, a long bear market. That must have been a really challenging time to launch a new uh, services firm.
2: Well, actually, you know, we we're sell ourselves as risk managers, and it had been such a long period of high risk that uh, people were looking around for risk managers. And uh, uh, also, I, it just so happened after that period, long period of time, 68 to 80, most of the time I was with J.C. Bradford. And of course, retail brokerage firms are historically bullish and and should be. But uh, so anyway, most of the time that I was there, I was negative, And it was just about... The 1980 early period that i was turning more bullish on the long-term outlook so that that was a very fortunate thing and um so i left there i was a partner at bradford's but um I wanted to, I guess my contribution to uh, the the business is that uh, this was really before computers uh, had taken over. In fact, they had just started over taking over the back offices. And uh, so I wanted to make the research that I do computerized so that I could test some of these things that that people saw on charts and see if any of them
1: worked. So... You got a lot of pushback from Bradford saying, hey, I really think we should adapt the new technology to our practice. They weren't very keen on that?
2: Well, the, the answer basically was, if, if it ain't broke, don't fix it, which is, which is a good answer. But this is something I wanted to do. And uh, there were a couple of Bradford brokers, Ed Mendel and Kent Regenstein, that they wanted to go out and, and try this. And uh, we already had a pretty good following. So uh, we, were wor- we were nervous about it, obviously, but... Um, we um, we didn't use any debt. We put up our own money and, uh, you know, we had enough customers and we, we made a go of it from the beginning.
1: Launching with a handful of customers or a decent number of customers, how to make that transition fairly even. What were the first, fairly easy, what were the first couple of years like um, when you were building the business?
2: Well, you know, it was i'm not a manager i i'm a research nerd and that's what i like to do so uh eddie and kent were in atlanta georgia which is eddie, where eddie Mendel and kent, kent Regenstein and they right. were they were in atlanta which is where the sales were and i i was in uh uh just outside of sarasota florida where i lived and um so anyway i i had to put together some people and it was uh it was it was fun being a being a starting manager is not something that I like doing, but it was fun.
1: So after a few years, you developed quite a reputation. And one of the things Ned Davis Research uh, was known for was these specific research projects requested by clients. In fact, uh, recently, they were doing more than 2,000 uh, client-generated research projects a year. How did that approach develop and how how... Uh, How do people approach you with, hey, I have an idea I want to test out?
2: Well, once we built our own software and had the computers uh, around, you know, my idea uh, actually was building a company similar to what Va- Value Line had built in the fundamental research area. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I remember specifically the day, the date that Arnold Bernhard died uh, because Value Line stock went up big that day. <laughs> and I thought this this is the kind of firm you, you want to build that uh, p- people want your data, they want your charts, they want your studies. They don't necessarily looking. For you know a, a guru that walks on water, they. So I decided to try to build a company like that. So yes, we set up a client services department where we would say you have research questions, you bring them here, and and we'll do the research for you. And we actually we won't share the research with our own research team. It's it's your proprietary product, and uh, it's it's been a good product for us. And we've come up actually, you know, I don't know. A, come we've come up, i've come up with a lot of ideas on my own but we probably we, we say we're client driven and and uh some of the best ideas i've had were, were client ideas
1: give, give us a, an example of some typical client client requests or some unusual client requests
2: well you know a lot of times that we'll have a chart and they'll want to see it back further or they'll want to see a different version of it uh um, but, uh, you know, we had a lot of crisis events when, uh, I got into the business and people said, what did the market do, uh, after there's a, a major crisis event? So we went back and, you know, we tried to study history and, you know, there was Pearl Harbor and there was uh, JFK's assassination. I got in the business, of, you know, Martin Luther King and Robert Kennedy died the first Assassinated the first year, and then you had Penn Central, and 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 on and on. So we put all this together and uh, saw what the market did, and and uh, it was fascinating. Generally, there was a uh, a, a sell off as you would expect on the news. Uh, but very short term and almost, you know, uh, six months to a year later, the market was almost always higher. So oh. we had we had put this study together and uh, we had shown it a couple times in publications. And then uh, on nine eleven, 11 we got a call from uh, we put it out again and, and we got a call from Barons, and they wanted to use it. And, uh, you know, it is terrible as that tragedy was. uh the study was very timely, and that you know there was a weak sell-off, and it was a very scary time. But uh, the market did did recover after that pretty so, well.
1: So, in response to unexpected geopolitical events. Markets wobble and then go about resuming their prior trends.
2: Exactly. Sometimes, sometimes you know they do better. Uh, it's it's, it's a, the logic's a little difficult to understand. But if you're a nervous holder of stock and some bad news comes, uh, you you panic out and uh, then who's left are, are strong holders of stock. So you know it's at that point it's it's hard to get people to sell after you've gotten the nervous people out. You got. Good strongholders of stock.
1: C- counterintuitive, but you get a washout, and then you're only left with with uh, people who are not likely to to jump out at any given moment.
2: When and the uh, the exception to this, of course, the, really, and there are not many, but the exception was Lehman. Mm -hmm. Uh, which was a panic event that that uh, that was systemic. And I think that that is a key when you're looking at crisis events. If 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 it's going to uh, take down the financial system, then the study's not going to work. But pretty much anything else, uh, wars, bombings, uh, terror attacks, uh, you know, the worst things you can think of, assassination of a president. uh, These things pretty much all fit the same pattern.
1: Even Lehman Brothers was September 08. Markets had peaked October 07, so it had been practically a year of downtrend. It wouldn't uh, The only real difference between the trend is Lehman just precipitated an acceleration to the uh, downtrend. That's partly
2: true, but I think the, uh, the systemic part to the uh, banking system is critical.
1: Let's talk a little bit about um, technical analysis. So you were an early adopter, not only of technical analysis— but of technology as well. Tell us how that changed the way you looked at markets.
2: Well, you know, you start off, uh, you read uh, Edwards and McGee, a technical analysis mm-hmm. book, or a lot of other really well-written books on uh, chart patterns, and uh, then you start applying that, and you uh, you see a head and shoulders bottom, and you say, "Oh my goodness, this stock is turning up," and then you're Uh, reading another report and somebody's looking at the same chart and they say, oh, no, that's that's a head and shoulders top. And (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and uh, it was almost like uh, you made your own reality. You looked at a chart, and you saw what you wanted to see. So uh, I said, I can't do this. I have to uh, have it more quantitative. I've got to uh, test these things and see whether they work or not. So that that was the idea, really, of, of going to technology. I also, at that point, uh, had... Gotten interested in other people that seemed very successful in the business. Uh, One of my mentors was a guy named Edson Gould, Mm -hmm. and uh, he was a technician, uh, but he also really believed that the stock market and, and the economy were driven by crowd psychology, and he was also a studier of the Federal Reserve Board. I also came, uh, became good friends with Marty's Zweig. He started out as a sentiment guy too, and he ended up uh, like me, don't fight the fed, don't fight the tape.
1: So, so Marty Zweig is always my answer to the question, how come there are no rich technicians? And the answer is there are a ton of very successful people who use technicals as a fundamental basis of their trading and their investment strategy. Did you get a lot of pushback from your work? from the fundamental community
2: i think originally uh there were only a handful alan shaw uh Uh, Bob Farrell, there were really only a handful of of technicians that that were uh, in high regard. And so it it was difficult at first. But, you know, again, once you go through a bear market, people uh, look around and say, you know, I need to, uh, I can't just buy and hold all the time without concern over anything. I have to, you know, manage my risks. And so
1: uh, it's gotten obviously a lot more popular. How did technicals differ at the institutional level and the retail level?
2: Well, I think retail was, you know, more interested in just, uh, you know, short-term movements in, in stocks. And uh, the institutions were more interested in a big picture, uh, maybe tying it in with the macro and, and, and the Fed and sentiment and uh, longer-term things. And I had also gotten interested, uh, you know, in the in the Fed, Federal Reserve Board's uh you know, emphasis in the stock market. And and so trying to put things in perspective, uh, a guy named Hamilton Bolton with the bank credit analyst had put together a monetary thermometer, which was really Mm -hmm. one of the first models uh, that they had timing model uh, using Federal Reserve statistics. And I I was really fascinated by that.
1: So these days, there's a near infinite amount of charting software. You could pretty much access a ton of, really highly detailed um, technical studies, some of which are, are free, some of which are fairly modest, modestly priced. What has the ubiquity of computing power and all the software done to the world of, of trading and investing?
2: Well, it's a, it's, a, it's a good question and the answer's complicated. Uh, there's a lot of good ideas. Uh, you know, this, this happens to be one that fits my psyche on how to invest, but there's a lot of good ideas uh, about how to invest and how to make money. The one key problem is if something gets too popular, it's going to hurt its effectiveness. So, mm-hmm. um, but this is true of anything. I, I remember in the 1980s, which was... a. Uh, A big period because it was the start of my company and uh, it was it was a bull market period and people didn't need risk advisors for a while. And and, uh, we got into 1987 and uh, I got really, uh, really worried about derivatives and uh, what they could do to the market. But uh, anyway, that,
1: are you referring to portfolio insurance or something broader? Portfolio
2: than that? insurance, uh, which was part of part mm-hmm. of using derivatives to do portfolio insurance, and actually, I thought portfolio insurance was one of the coolest ideas I'd ever heard of, and it actually fit exactly what I want to do with my hedge work i want you know i want to protect my portfolio in a downtrend and so it was a great idea and it was widely sold on wall street and then uh you know the market started down and fortunately i, I was able to uh, to sort to sort of see this one so uh, anyway that we had a, we had a crash that i think was caused really by a great idea that got too popular so um This is the thing when technical analysis gets so popular, everybody's looking at the same patterns and the same breakouts and acting on them. It's not going to act as well as if you could find something that nobody's looking at.
1: Let's talk a little bit about the stock market and what separates good investors from not so good investors. Uh, You wrote something not too long ago uh, in one of your books, or maybe it was a, a little while ago, Uh, Good investors, successful investors have four basic traits. They're objective, they're disciplined, they're flexible, and they're risk averse. Is it that simple? It's just those four things? You do that and you're uh, good to be a good investor?
2: Yes. It's complicated when you say those things together because people think, well, discipline is the opposite of flexible. But Mm -hmm. when we use the term flexible, we're really really thinking about open-mindedness. And this is one of the curses in my life, or one of the gifts in my life, is, is that uh, if there's a debate, I, I could pretty well take both sides uh, and do a pretty good job. So that,
1: that means you're objective.
2: I, I have a gift of, of being able to see both sides. The negative is it's it's hard to be 100% black or white mm-hmm. uh, when you can see the, the world's actually gray.
1: What uh, about What about risk averse? Because we're taught yeah. that risk aversion often leads people to be too quick to jump out of equities- when they should be a little more risk-embracing?
2: Yes, well, that's a good question because it it, it happens to be the – the one piece of my philosophy that has changed over the years, because there's a lot of risk takers that have made a lot of money, but what they do is they manage their risk. So they'll they'll take a big position, but uh, if it, if it goes sour or the news changes, they get out. So it's still a matter. It's still a matter of risk management. But I, I think the term risk averse was uh, came from uh, being in the market from 1968 to 82. Frankly.
1: So speaking of which, those who study history are contemned to repeat its mistakes. How difficult is it for investors to learn the lessons that history presents to us?
2: Well, it's tricky because you want to learn the correct lessons and you don't want to learn the bad lessons and it. It's a little hard to know uh, which it is. So th- what happens is there'll be a period of time and there was a mistake during that period of time and everybody learns and says, well, I won't make that mistake again. And then times change and periods change and errors change and uh, everybody's learned that le- the lesson of that period but not the next period. So again, I think the real lesson is studying... Uh, studying history is seeing manias, bubbles, seeing, uh, you know, extremes from extreme pessimism to extreme optimism and uh, how how these end up, how how they end up. And uh, that's the lesson. It's not just Oh, portfolio insurance is, is uh, something I'll never do again. That That's not really the lesson. The lesson is it, it got too popular. The market got too high. There was too much optimism, and that 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 is a terrible combination. That's the lesson to learn.
1: So so between the extremes of, of too much pessimism, like we saw in 87 and 73, 74 and 03 and 09, and too much optimism with 66, and go through the list, 66 in 2000, and then again in, in 07, although I don't know if that was as much too much optimism as, as you mentioned, a systemic problem. Where are we in that spectrum between too much negativity and too much enthusiasm?
2: Yes, I think mean, it was Templeton that said, uh, bull markets are born in pessimism. They rise on skepticism. They mature on optimism and they die on euphoria, and uh, I think that's pretty much what we've seen uh, since 2009. We've gone through those phases, and I think after the election, for for whatever reason, uh, we got we went into the euphoric stage, and you can see this uh, in all kinds of consumer confidence, business confidence, uh, CEO confidence. Uh, uh, so all
1: the soft sentiment data got way way. Higher than it was euphoric,
2: previously. but we just this isn't this is an early phase of euphoria. So I I don't I don't necessarily think this is the end, but I think you, you can certainly see see euphoria, and that that's uh, that's a high risk phase.
1: So so what should investors do to manage their risk? What's what's the best approach for someone's listening to this? They have a couple of million dollars in their four hundred one k and their investment portfolios. How should they manage that?
2: Well, you know, as a, if, if you're a chartist and that's your, your background, uh, you, you can see formations, you see uh, demand on a chart, or you see trend lines, and, um, or you just use stop losses below important lows, and uh, if the market turns down, you, you just get stopped out. Uh, other people might want to, uh, right now, the protection, the insurance, portfolio insurance for portfolios, the VIX Is very low. VIX is how much it costs to buy options. The VIX is very low. You can buy some puts to protect your portfolio. Uh, Some hedge fund short stocks. You can use put some money in cash and wait for pullback. So there's a lot, lots of things you can do.
1: So, is a interesting um, question that comes up with the rise of uh, technical analysis, which is thanks to computers, we could pretty much put anything on a chart. How how advisable is it to chart everything you possibly can? You could look at earnings. You could look at everything from GDP to what have you. There really isn't any data series that can't be put on a chart.
2: No, and and that's what we do. I mean, that's what my business does pretty much. And we we actually analyze the economy pretty much the same way we do the stock market. We use sentiment indicators, we use trend indicators. Uh, In the economy, there's a lot of indicators that that tend to lead the economy. So we put most of our emphasis on the leading uh, leading economic indicators. And when they're turning up and are, are strong, then that's a good sign. So we, I do this somewhat in the stock market. There are certain groups and sectors that tend to lead the market, uh, and so we put our main emphasis on those, the trend of those. Also, we look for the economy or the stock market. We look for the Federal Reserve Board and what are they doing because they control the cost of money and the availability of money. And if you're looking at supply and demand, which is what technical analysis is all about, how can you ignore the Federal Reserve Board? You really can't.
1: Talk to me about Big Mo. It's one of my favorite charts of yours. How did how did the idea come about? And, and what tell us what it actually depicts?
2: Okay, Big Mo is just a trend of a hundred uh, hundred uh, industry groups, hundred sub industry groups, and it's the cyclical trend. So we're talking you know a year or two kind of trends. Um, but I called it put the Mo in there. Uh, we also look at rates of change, how fast a group is rising or falling, and the momentum indicators. Um, are trend-sensitive, but they're not exactly trend indicators. So they can be early. So when you put the trend-following indicators and the the momentum indicators together, uh, I think you can get a little closer to tops and bottoms and Big Mo right now shows about sixty-nine percent of those industry groups are still in strong uptrends, and and uh, that that's a decent figure. It's a high neutral, I would say, mildly bullish. And we we use below fifty-six percent as a, as a warning sign.
1: So you mentioned um, the rise in sentiment indicators earlier. Uh, someone did a study not too long ago that showed the the largest gap ever between soft. Survey sentiment information and hard actual data. Uh, what do you what do you think of that gap between between the two?
2: Well, uh, I think clearly the soft tends to be leading uh, leads the hard. So the fact that the uh, soft is strong and the the hard is is weak uh, is not necessarily a a bad sign. However, this works much better depending on where you are in a cycle. Uh, if you're coming out of a recession and there's a lot of unused labor, unused capital, there's a lot of savings around, uh, and then sentiment soars, well, people have the ability to go out and, and, and spend, and we saw this in 2009, 2010. Now, we're getting the same kind of sentiment readings now, but we've had nine years of an expansion and, and people have very little savings. They're up to their teeth. Uh, you got a, over a trillion dollars in student debt. You know, you got a trillion dollars credit card debt and you got a trillion dollars in auto debt. Uh, so it's a lot different thing. So yes, I think the hard, we think the hard debt is going to come on, but not by much.
1: So uh, since we're talking about sentiment, how noisy is the series of, of sentiment data? It seems that there's a lot of fairly wild swings uh over short periods of time well
2: it just depends on who your uh you know what your survey is if it's futures traders they're going to be pretty quick uh You know, uh, CEOs don't change their uh, opinion that often. So it depends. Uh, But there there are small surveys. And uh, if Trump uh, proved anything, he proved that, you know, that polls aren't always right. So what we do, uh, we look at a lot of polls. We also look at what people are doing in terms of option trading, uh, how optimistic people are, uh, upside volume versus downside volume, a lot of measures of, of activity. And we put all these together in a composite model. Uh, I think we uh, one of the ones we use has 28 indicators in it. So if some of them are, are fake news, then you hope the uh, the majority picks up the, the correct picture.
1: What's, what's the name of that particular in, uh, chart or indicator? Well, we
2: have the NDR uh, crowd sentiment poll.
1: We have been speaking with Ned Davis, co-founder of Ned Davis Research. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and stick around for the podcast extras, where we keep the digital tape rolling and continue to talk about all things technical. Be sure and check out my daily column at BloombergView.com. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio.
0: What could your future hold? More than you think. Because at Merrill Lynch, we work with you to create a strategy built around your priorities. Visit ML.com and learn more about Merrill Lynch, an affiliate of Bank of America. Merrill Lynch makes available products and services offered by Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner Smith Incorporated, a registered broker, dealer, member, SIPC.
1: Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Ned, for doing this. I, I have to share the funny story when I first started writing for bloomberg about 3 or 4 years ago they came to me and said what would you like to do and there was a whole long story and the takeaway was i want to sit down with accomplished intelligent people and have a conversation about their career and their impact uh, on markets and business and what have you you were one of if not the first interview i had done and so I said, like this, like this Ned Davis interview, here, here's a uh, SoundCloud in bed. Take a look at it. And in hindsight, it's very rough. It's on the phone. Uh, the old, um, the, the reference from Malcolm Gladwell uh, in Outliers, you do something for 10,000 hours, you eventually get good at it. I haven't quite done a full 10,000 hours, but... You're about 150 something, we've been doing this now for three years. And when I listened to that interview in preparation for this interview, I have to say you were very patient and very kind because I was just god-awful then. Um, but I really appreciate you coming yeah. back yeah. and and letting a, a somewhat improved version of me uh, have this conversation. Um, so thank you very much for, for flying up for this. Uh, I've been a fan of your work for forever. We didn't get to talk about the books during the the broadcast portion, but I have to ask you a few questions about these because these are really very significant books in in the world of investing. The first one that I have to talk about is this one: Being right or Making Money. Now a collector's edition. you can't find that i've I've had this for I don't know how long underlined and highlighted. What was the thinking behind? writing that book?
2: Well, again, I was, you know, trying to outline my philosophy mainly for clients, but uh, that spending time on trying to forecast and be right is is interesting. I certainly continue to do that, but really the focus should be on how to make money. And so, uh, and again, we use the tape, uh, the trend sentiment and, and the Federal Reserve Board, uh, to make money. But I, I think the um, one of the big things is, as I mentioned it earlier, is the magic of compound interest. And, and this is just a simple math thing that every kid should learn in school. But again, if you have a drawdown like 29 to thir- 32 in stocks was 84%, you have to, you have to uh, go up 525% to get back to even. And it took many, many years. So uh, I don't want, we didn't want big drawdowns. That's, that's the key to making money.
1: And one of the things that I've been thinking about since I read this book so long ago was when people make forecasts, there's a tendency to marry those forecasts, meaning despite evidence coming their way that they're wrong, they stick with the forecast regardless and don't adjust their portfolio appropriately. In other words, they're willing to lose money in order to hang around long enough for their forecast to eventually come true. How, how dangerous is that?
2: Well, you know, we have a, another expression that we like to use in my shop is is we all make our own reality. And uh, mm-hmm. this, this was shocking the first time I heard it because I figured reality reality. But sometimes when I'll be before an audience, I'll say, uh, how many of you are sports fans? Let's say, Uh, Are you Knicks fans? And uh, I'm in New York, and they'll say yes. And I'll say, well, how many of you have ever gone to a game and thought the referee favored the other team? And of course, nobody nobody raises their hand because uh, we see what we want to see. You know, we want the Knicks or whoever our team is to win. So we always go to the game and think the referees were for the other team. When the NBA's NBA's actually done studies that show, uh, if anything, it's very slight. But there is a small favor. uh, There's a small advantage for the home team uh, in the calls in an average game. So this is something we see with our own eyes. So it's very easy. You have a position. You want it to work. You tend to read things that confirm your opinion, and you don't read things that may not. So this, again, goes back to that flexibility thing. This is, is important. Uh, or, or even just say, hey, I'm going to put a stop loss there. If I made a mistake, I made a mistake. I'm done.
1: The, the sports metaphor is so perfect. I'm a basketball fan. I'm a Knicks fan. And, of course, Patrick Ewing would never got the call, but Shaq and Jordan always did. I'm not a big college fan basketball fan but joe bessaker of emerald asset management is a huge fan and during the nit i think it was the finals that are played at the garden he i get a call one day hey i'm i got courtside seats you want to come see this i'm not a basketball fan if you i'm not a college hoops fan he goes if you've never watched the game in the garden courtside you have to come see this okay so we go watch this really exciting game pretty close Um, only he's a fan of his alma mater, who actually made it. And I'm watching the game, and Joe is just distraught because every call is absolutely the worst call ever made to mankind. And, uh, uh, ref, come on, the guy took six steps. He's walking. I have no dog in the fight. I could care less. And I'm like, hey, Joe, that was a step and a half. It's a layup. You're allowed to. And it was a moment of clarity that, Oh, your subjectivity really affects the way you perceive the wall. It was a, it was amazing going to a game where you didn't care who won and watching people's reaction.
2: Yes, I think it was Extraordinary Popular Madness of Crowds. McKay wrote it, and he said uh, an individual taken by themselves is, is rational. When you put the individual in a crowd, it becomes a blockhead. Yeah, uh, you know it's it's just totally crowd psychology is is really really strong. It's overwhelming. It takes all of us over, and uh, it's it's really a very different than than an individual psychology.
1: So another book I wanted to ask you about was the Triumph of Contrarian Investing: uh, Crowds, Manias, and Beating the Market by Going Against the Grain. So. A question I always have about contrarian investing is: Well, markets have a tendency to go up over the long haul, and we have a tendency to see these long trends. Can you be a contrarian in the midst of a ten or a twenty-year bull market?
2: Yes. Well, that that you know. We like to say we go with the flow. In other words, we go with the crowd until they reach an extreme and begin to reverse. And it's at that, that small moment of time where it pays to be a contrarian. So it's, it's, a, it's a bad mistake to say, I'm just going to go against the crowd. That, that will not get you anywhere. You've got to really wait for extremes.
1: And a, a question I didn't get to during the broadcast portion was about competitors. You launched in 1980. Were there any real technicians doing the sort of work you were doing then? Who were your competitors as a research firm?
2: Uh, I don't think there were really any uh, competitors uh, doing technical research. Uh, I mentioned earlier uh, Hamilton Bolton and the bank credit analyst. They uh-huh. they did a little bit of technical, uh, a lot of monetary, uh, and and c- certainly they're they're one of our competitors. Uh, you know, I'd like to compete with ISI, mm-hmm. uh, Ed Hyman, because it, it's just a champion. Uh, and uh, there's now Cornerstone Macro Research. There's Renmac uh, Jeff DeGraff's mm-hmm. a friend of mine, and uh, so I would say th- th- those all now have a technical element to them. Mm-hmm.
1: So it, it's broadened out. Given the change in the commission structure that's out there and the the shrinking of institutional sales desks, uh, is, is this end of the industry getting smaller and less competitive, or is it just consolidating with the handful of firms that seems to have figured out how to add value to the process?
2: Uh, you know, it was concentrated uh, by Wall Street banks, and now uh, there's, a, there's a lot of independent firms. Uh, that are doing a great job. So uh, I don't know. It it has changed. Certainly, uh, commissions have changed. They they were fixed when I got into the business, and uh, uh, so it's it, it's gotten harder. But uh, the business has changed. It's always changing.
1: So let's talk a little. It's always changing. That's that's pretty sage uh, advice. Let's talk about the rise of quantitative and indexing. What what does the rise of low cost passive indexing mean to the world of active investing and, and what does that mean to a firm that sells its research to to uh money managers
2: well you know if if everybody's an active manager and they're competing with each other then um
1: it's, zero it's going to
2: be a hard it's going to be very difficult to beat the averages so they're charging high fees to be active managers and some of them are very successful uh but on average they're they're not doing any better than the market averages so uh i think john bogle had a great idea that uh, to, to put these index t- together and uh low fees, and uh, this would be a better investment for most people over the long run. And I, th- I think that's, that's true. Uh, however, I noticed today, I just happened to see a Bloomberg thing where there was a chart, and they said there's more index funds now than there are stocks. And uh, so again, this is a popular idea. It's a good idea. There's nothing wrong with it. But if it gets too popular, it will blow up just like all the other Big ideas what, too.
1: When does this get too popular? What what we Vanguard is four trillion, three trillion of which is passive. BlackRock is five trillion, most of that is passive. At what point, or much of that, I should say, is passive. At what point does this get to be too big?
2: Well, you know, after Al Gore invented the internet, uh, no, and we had all the dot com stocks. I I thought, gosh, this has got to be. Uh, a bubble certainly and, and of course it continued for 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 a number of years and it, it's even bigger today uh but uh so i think you can't just say uh it's extremely popular you, you have to wait till the trends give up a little bit you have to wait till the fed becomes a little more hostile and at that point i think you make the bet passive investing is done and i think it's a late phase
1: late phase okay good
2: not nothing. Nothing wrong with passive investing. Nothing mm-hmm. wrong with portfolio insurance. There's nothing wrong with growth stocks. It's just when they get too too popular.
1: And and we're still not there yet. You're saying.
2: Uh, we're getting there.
1: We're getting there. Okay. <laughs> so, which raises which raises the question, and and you've written about this a lot. Is the role of emotions in investing? How, first, how important is it to keep emotions out, and then second what can an investor do to to maintain that
2: yes well that's that's why we put together these sentiment composites and they they asked a warren buffett one time the secret of success and you know he's a fundamental individual value investor and he said oh our secret is we we try to buy when everybody's fearful and we try to sell when everybody is is greedy uh and uh, Which so is not
1: a fun- fundamental It's not a it? fundamental
2: thing at all. In fact, to me, it's a very technical thing because mm-hmm. when everybody's optimistic, they've already bought. And okay. so who's left to buy? And when everybody's pessimistic, again, you've run off all the nervous sellers, so you've got strong sellers of stock. So that's the idea. It's actually the same thing that Buffett did Uh we we try to put these sentiment polls together to see when there's fear and greed, and, and we try to tell ourselves, oh, I know the news is terrible, but uh, you know, you know, sometimes clouds part, and uh, you know it's a good time to buy. And by the way, our poll got very very cautious before the election, and uh, it uh, marks done pretty well since huh. before the election.
1: Is um so you're really essentially saying Warren Buffett is a closet technician? Is that what I'm hearing? absolutely. Absolutely, um, and John
2: Templeton I mentioned earlier, he was also supposed to be a fundamentalist, and he described the market in. And, and uh, another one up, uh, Buffett said that is really struck home with me. <clears throat> he said, "You know, it's not that I like pessimism; I just like the values that pessimism produces." So there, you've measured, you've put together now fundamentals, which are values, and you've put together sentiment, which I think is technical. So uh, you do, when there's a lot of pessimism, you tend to get better values. And when there's a lot of euphoria, you tend to get an overvalued market. So it's really, uh, there's not really a struggle here uh, in the long run between a technician and a fundamentalist.
1: All right. So let's shift over to my 10 favorite questions. I ask these of all my guests. Um, Tell us about the most important thing people do don't know about your background
2: oh uh, they probably don't know that i speak french
1: <laughs> <laughs> do you still speak french have you been i in do Paris not recently? speak french no <laughs> so so what what don't they know about you 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 once spoke french but pretty much that's uh that's faded
2: you know i uh i'm really uh a, a very uh persistent in my work. I've been doing this for 50 years. I'm very focused on my work, but uh, I try to have some balance in my life. And uh, I have four kids and two grandkids. And uh, uh, I don't know exactly what what role I had except being there, but uh, I'm very proud of them. So I, I think that gives my life some balance.
1: Tell us about some of your early mentors.
2: Well, I mentioned uh, Hamilton Bolton. I mentioned uh, 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 Edson Gould, uh, who were t- two really outstanding pioneers. Uh, a guy named Marty Zwaga I talked about, and sure. we, we did some research in conjunction with each other. Uh, Norman Fossback, uh, another guy that did a lot of t- to try to put technicals into studies and Stop test them market, historically. Uh, Stock Market Logic was mm-hmm. the name of his book.
1: I uh that. And uh, who right else?
2: now uh, – the, the people still doing technical analysis that I do, like I do successfully, Jim Stack, who's in Vesttech and Sure. And uh, there's a guy, Dan Sullivan, who does the charter service that has a real-time track record that's terrific. And uh, so...
1: You mentioned Jeff DeGraff earlier. Jeff DeGraff. Um, any other technicians? We, we've spoken to Jeff DeGraff. We've spoken to John Roque. Who else Who else do you think is an interesting technician? You know,
2: I, I really... Um, Wow. I, I read a lot. I, I try not to, uh, again, is, is the thing about being at the game, the crowd psychology. Uh, I try to let my charts talk to me. And so I try not to read too, too many, uh, competitors work.
1: So you mentioned a number of people who influenced your approach to technical analysis. Any other technicians that were formative to you in your early days?
2: Um, I really like Bob Farrell uh, and Merrill Lynch. He, uh, you know, Bob Farrell had an opinion, but he uh, he would give both sides. Uh, uh, he would give a balanced view and, and uh, sort of lean one way or the other. And uh, that really appealed to me. I, I just uh, did not like the approach that the world's all black or all white. It's 100 percent bullish or, you know, sell everything. I just don't think the world worked that way. And. He was able to pull it off, and uh, he he had a lot of good uh, good rules and uh,
1: the ten rules of market investing by yes, Bob Farrell.
2: and, and they're excellent.
1: Mm-hmm. And you mentioned Alan Shaw earlier, who right? Some people, I believe, he was the co-founder of the Market Technicians Association, right? And very much an influential um, technical analyst. Um, what what's your relationship with Alan?
2: uh i know him and i used to you know i get i used to read his work and uh again he's he's a level headed uh and he's a nice guy he's an honest guy and uh he helped a lot of people in the business that got into it and taught them stuff and uh so
1: So let's talk a little bit about books what uh you mentioned um uh, uh, edwards and mcgee
2: edwards and mcgee yes and uh charles mckay had the extraordinary popular delusions in the madness of crowd there's been some other books written about manias i think these are all very very useful mm-hmm. uh books uh a guy named sobel wrote a book on the big board which is a history of the new york stock exchange uh so I, he's gone over a lot a lot of periods so I, I like history books um uh, and then uh, marty zweig had winning on wall street and norman fosbett market logic and those would be some of mm-hmm. my favorites
1: uh, what do you What do you read to relax? Do you read anything that's not technical analysis, markets, or history?
2: You know, I read, I uh, like sports. I read about sports. Uh, I don't like to discuss politics, but I like politics. So I re- read like, the, it's gotten more and more fascinating. Mm-hmm. And um, some other fiction, I really don't read a lot. Uh, I read just recently, my kids may read a, a Boy's in the Boat, which is a story of rowing and washington state that went on and, and won the olympics uh and uh it was a fascinating book Huh?
1: quite quite interesting um so tell us what's changed since you joined the industry what do you think are the most significant shifts that we've witnessed over the past few decades
2: well it's it's the same thing any anybody would know they, they, we've gone from you know uh, drawing with paper and pen and, and,
1: uh, were you doing that earlier publishing? in your
2: career? Absolutely. I Everybody
1: a... I've but Alan Shaw, uh, Ralph Alcampora, they all talk, tell about charting by hand. What does that do for well, you? Not course? only
2: that, I had a big, I had a big wall in my office. Basically my wallpaper were, were charts that I mm-hmm. put up and, and marked by hand. And now of course everything is, is, uh, te- technology and, uh, so th- I'd say that's, that's the biggest change. And there were a lot of, I think, there were a lot more inefficiencies when I started in the business. If you wanted to study market inefficiencies, you could, you could find them. And uh, with algorithms and computers uh, and all these bright guys doing this stuff, I think there's a, there's a lot less of that. So uh, from that standpoint, I think the, the business has gotten a lot tougher. And, and you have to be flexible and you have to adjust because it's changing all the time.
1: When, when you were charting by hand versus doing it today where you just push a button on a computer, do you lose anything in the process of not, day by day, spending 45 minutes putting together however many hundred charts you were doing by hand each day? What's lost when, you, when that goes away?
2: I guess, I guess there's some kind of feel, but if you go through enough charts, I think you get the same kind of feel. So no, I don't think I don't think I've lost much from that.
1: Um, so, given that technology has been the prime driver of changes in the past, what do you think the next major shifts are going to be in the industry?
2: Well, here's the thing, you know, in every age there's something that comes along that catches people's narrative and uh, what you want to do is be in a position that when that when that changes that you can take advantage of it. And and uh, you'll read rules. I have rules and I, I teach rules and philosophy. But again, if they get too popular, they, they quit working. And so that's what makes this a fascinating business. It makes it so difficult to forecast. I think Alan Abelson had this line one time and I loved it. He said, just just about the time you, you learn how to play the game, they change the rules." And uh, so I think there's a lot of truth in that, and so I think you know what we need to do is is stay flexible, uh, disciplined, and um, and go against whatever gets overly done.
1: Professor Andrew Lowe and MIT called it adaptive markets. No matter what the the circumstances are, eventually markets adapt to it, and, and those rules stop working. Um, Tell us about a time you uh, you failed and what you learned from it. What what was something where, gee, that didn't work out as expected. What was the takeaway?
2: Well, I, you know, again, uh, I said one of my rules is don't don't fight the Fed. Well, uh, you know, the Fed was tightening uh, right into to, to two thousand and and into two thousand seven, and and as soon as, uh, well, as, as Bear Stearns blew up, they they started easing. Mm-hmm. So you say, well, the market can't go down because the Fed's gonna you know going to protect it and that's that's one of my key rules well the fed kept easing and the market kept going down so uh i i I didn't this is not a mistake because i saw the trend turning down and uh i I saw the sentiment where it was with with the housing bubble and uh so that didn't throw me off but in the late 1990s uh One of Gould's uh, indicators uh, was the dividend yield on the Dow, and he said when it gets down below, you know, three percent, the market's in trouble. Well, it did that in late 1996, and that I think that's one of the reasons. uh, You know, the Greenspan said irrational exuberance, but the market kept going up. So uh, that was an indicator that I think had never failed, and it failed in that case, and it 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 got me too cautious too soon.
1: So, what do you do outside of the office to keep? either mentally or physically fit what do you what do you do to relax
2: well I try to work out we actually have a gym at our at our office and so uh, mm-hmm. I try to do that I play a little golf and then uh, you know we we live on the, the west coast of Florida and uh, we do quite a bit of boating mm-hmm. my my younger boys are both big fishermen so I, I pretty much have to i <laughs> have to get out on the water
1: uh, i on the, don't fish you're on the gulf so oh, so i was gonna say they're looking for tarpon and bonefish and what else do you ever go with them fishing
2: mm-hmm. well sometimes yeah what
1: what what are they what are they typically yeah tarpon's
2: one of the, the favorites but mm-hmm. we're a grouper and snapper mm-hmm. uh area we got some really good fish
1: all edible eat what yeah. you uh, catch and release the rest
2: Yeah, uh, we we release everything that's not good eating yeah mm-hmm. for sure
1: what sort of advice would you give to a millennial or a recent college graduate uh, who's just beginning their career in markets or interested in technical analysis? What, how would you advise them?
2: Well, you know, I got into this business uh, at the at the beginning of a in- incredible bull market, so I, I would say you know I've had a lot of luck from from a timing standpoint, but. Uh, I, I could have quit this business a long time ago and I continue to work. Uh, And and the reason is because I love it, and and what I love about it is that uh, one year it's uh, energy that's driving the stock market, and the next year it's housing, so i got to be a housing expert. And the next year it's geopolitical, and and it's just always changing. So I'm a person that loves to learn. The world's changing, and, and it's fascinating. I can get an education, a new education every year, and I get paid paid well to do it and uh the markets are fascinating and uh you know to go into an industry let's say you go into the steel industry and you're stuck there for 40 or 50 years i mean i'm in a different industry or there's a different industry technology whatever that's driving the market every year so i think it's a fascinating business i think people should go in it and uh, um you know i love it
1: and our final question what do you know about technical analysis and markets today that you wish you knew back in the late, early seventies when you when you first started.
2: Well, as I said earlier, I, I started out as a forecaster, and I think that's uh that's a good way to lose money and and <laughs> uh, be wrong. So uh, uh so I I that that's one thing I would have gotten into that earlier, obviously. And uh, I do think when you look at charts, just as is the pure technician. Uh, a lot of times you see what you want to see, and so I think you've got to try to quantify it uh, a, a, as much as possible. So, um, How
1: how closely have you followed the field of behavioral economics as it's developed over the past, well, let's call it 30, 35 years? Because a lot of what you reference on the technical side very much tracks what, what the guys like uh, Danny Kahneman and Bob Schiller and Richard Thaler have been saying for, for quite a while.
2: You know, there's a lot, like I said, there's a lot of good ideas out there. I think though, if you don't put it in a, a big macro con context, if you just take one area and you focus on it, then uh, that's a mistake. So you got to put it in context. Uh, for example, right now, I'm, I'm a, I was a huge, fa- well, I'm a huge fan of, The Laffer curve. Mm -hmm. And Kennedy did it and it worked wonderfully. He cut rates from 91 to 70. Reagan came in, he cut them from 70 to 50. Then he cut them from 50 to 28. We had a boom in the 60s. We had a boom in the 80s. Great idea, right? Well, then George Bush tried it in 2000. Didn't work. And because we were in a different phase of the cycle. So when you have a rule, mm-hmm. and everybody's got a rule, a Keynesian rule, yes, there was a good good, good reason for deficits and bailouts at one point, mm-hmm. right? But it doesn't work at another point in time. So I think this is the problem with, with this kind of thing, just getting focused on one area. You've got to put it in context. Let,
1: let me push back on the Laffer rule for a second. When you have very high taxes and you cut them significantly— you get a huge impact from right, that right exactly when when you make minor changes what did bush do 39 exactly to 37 exactly what
2: trump wants to do 39 to 35 exactly uh,
1: nobody remember when when reagan came in there were all manner of um uh, tax shelters and deferments his tax change immediately led to a whole range of behavioral changes accountants lawyers investors hey this real estate shelter you have it's done you better move your money elsewhere and a lot of it finds its way into but three four percent nobody is doing a wholesale revision of it it's
2: it? an incentive but it's very small it, it, it's i i you ask people if you drop your next dollar from 91 to 70 right w- would that make you want to work harder yeah. Yeah. yeah and then you say what about if you went from 39 to 35 they went mm-hmm. not really
1: yeah hey, I, i'll take the extra cash but I'm certainly not changing my entire Kennedy corporate did, structure.
2: Kennedy did it after two recessions, mm-hmm. 58 and 60. And Reagan did it after two recessions, 80 and 82. Right. And now we've had a nine-year expansion, and we're gonna, now we're going to stimulate by cutting taxes. So I just say there's nothing wrong with the rule. There's it's nothing wrong applied. with the, the incentives, but it, it depends on wh- when it happens, what era, when what the cycle is. So th- that's the problem with having a a set mindset.
1: You you referenced your following politics from afar. Who who else do you think has some interesting political theories as to what's going on these days?
2: Uh you know, I, uh, there was a commission that, and I think this was uh, Obama's really biggest mistake, but anyway, he had a commission to, to look at the fiscal monetary structure, uh, Simpson-Bowles, mm-hmm. and it was bipartisan, mm-hmm. last bipartisan commission we've had. And uh, almost, uh, I mean, nobody liked it because somebody was getting gored somewhere, right. was getting something <laughs> taken away, but uh, I personally felt like that, that was a great idea. And, um, uh, they just, neither the Democrats nor Republicans would do it. But I think, uh, essentially that was a lot of the things we needed to do.
1: We have been speaking to Ned Davis of Ned Davis research. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and check out our other past three years. I don't even know how many we've had of, of conversations. I would be remiss if I did not thank Taylor Riggs, my booker producer and Michael Batnick our head of research. Uh, Be sure and check out all our other conversations. You can find them on SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, Apple, iTunes. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at Bloomberg.net. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio.
0: Our world is always moving. So with Merrill Lynch, you can get access to financial guidance online, in person, or through the app. Visit ml.com and learn more about Merrill Lynch, an affiliate of Bank of America. Merrill Lynch makes available products and services offered by Merrill Lynch Pierce Fenner Smith Incorporated, a registered broker-dealer member SIPC.